Last time that I played the cello, did I mention that? Yes. And I played Bach and so forth. Um, I didn't grow up playing the cello, though. I, I grew up playing the piano. Um, and um, when, I, when I was a kid, my sister and I both started playing the piano together. She's, uh, she's about three years older than I am, and she took to it like my sister does to music. So she started playing the piano, uh, and I, I played the notes, whatever it was. And uh, I'm, I was good at it. Here's, a, here's an A, here's the A. So I played the notes, and uh, my teacher said, you're doing fine. And then I heard um, my sister play the same piece, practicing it. And I thought, oh, I'm playing notes, she's playing music. It was the same exact thing. She went on to study music, actually. She got uh, a prestigious scholarship to the University of Texas, and she earned both her master, bachelor's and master's in piano performance. So she, this, that was her thing. Her, she was gifted. Uh, years of me plunking away at the notes, I finally decided, this is not my thing. I cannot, I can hear it. I can hear my sister play, and that's what it's supposed to sound like and I'm trying to even mimic her, and I still couldn't do it. So I decided to quit the piano, and, I, and, and at our house we had sort of a, an unwritten rule. We had to play something. We couldn't just give up the piano or anything we started and not replace it with something else. So I thought, oh, I'll play the guitar. So it's unlike anything my sister would play. So I, I picked up the guitar, uh, and I started taking lessons, and uh, I started playing classical guitar, so you know, I, can, I started playing cl classical music on the guitar. I still loved classical music and jazz, but I uh, started playing the guitar. That didn't last too long either. <laughs> I mean, I did play for a while, a few years, but um, there wasn't much else you could do, really, with the guitar, uh, unless you're in a band or something, and I didn't want to join a band. You could sing and join a band, but I didn't want to do that. So, I, long story short, I ended up finding my instrument, uh, let's see, now 10 years ago. So my, my, my son was eight, seven, eight, around that. And um, he, he also started with a piano. And uh, he continued with the piano. And he, wa he, he was watching this YouTube video of uh, a cellist playing music from Star Wars. And uh, it was a funny video, and he thought, I want to play that instrument. I said, are you sure? It's, that's the cello. It's pretty hard. It's one of the more difficult instruments uh, you can pick up in the whole orchestra. So cellos and violins are notoriously difficult. And uh, so I, I said, are you sure? He said, yeah, I'm sure. And I said, here's the rule. If we are investing into a cello and taking lessons, you can't just up and quit. He was sure he would continue, so I said, okay. So we got him a cello, a student cello. He stuck with it for several years, uh, but during that time, uh, I thought, why didn't I learn to play the cello? I mean, we're going to the lessons anyway. I have to drive him, right? I'm the chauffeur, so I got there, and I said, I'm just sitting there. Right, so I asked uh, the cello teacher, hey, do you teach adults too? And he said, of course. Half of my students are adults. Some of them are retired, and they want to learn a new instrument. So I said, okay, I don't have that kind of time, but I'd like to learn a new instrument. And the cello, I've always loved the cello. 
So my son and I started taking lessons together. Then he, uh, he quit two years ago. <laughs> and I continued. He quit two years ago, but he has continued his piano. He's actually studying music with a piano professor at Malone, and he wants to continue that. Uh, probably not as his main uh, career, uh, but he wants to continue music. He's playing Chopin right now, uh, Nocturne, uh, I think in B-flat. So one of the things that he and I have in common is this. We practice very poorly. We practice a lot, but we practice poorly. I know this because my sister has told me so and told Thomas so. Thomas is my son's name. So my sister, being a pianist, and she also gives lessons, and she's done that her whole life. So if you're playing a new piece of music or something that you're working on, you start playing, and you get to a little measure that causes you to hiccup, right? The parts you just can't play very well. What I do, and I've noticed this about my son, we start over from the beginning because we just messed up. It's a little OCD. You're playing okay, you messed up, so what do you do? Start from the beginning. And you go back and you play and you mess up again and you start from the beginning. So you learn the first two measures really well. And then you, you get the one piece right, finally, and then you move on. So that's a really bad way of practicing because what you just did is practice it wrong 50 times and once right. So then what you're supposed to do, according to my sister and every music teacher I've had, if you come to a measure that's giving you trouble, ignore everything else. Just play that over and over and over. Not until you've, get, you've gotten it right, but after you've gotten it right, as long as it has taken you to get it right, you repeat it that many times. So if it's taking you two days to get it right, you play that thing two more days. That evens out the wrong and the right. And the muscle memory then kicks in. And then you move on. And then you play again, oh, easy parts, easy parts. Oh, goodness, hard part. And you pause there and you just play that piece over and over until your mind learns that little measure. That's the right way to practice. I still can't do it. I still want to start over. I just messed up, can I start over? But then I realized it's a total waste of time when I'm doing it this way. I, I, I can play the first you know, measures now, but why, am I, why, why do I want to keep going back? It's just a bad habit. And it's a little OCD, so I have to break that. Uh, so what I started doing was, when I'm working through, I mentioned Bach, I, when I'm working through Bach, and there are a couple of measures in each movement that give me trouble. So I highlight that measure, so I know which one it is, and that's my warm-up. The next time I'm practicing, I'll go straight to the parts that I can't play, and I'll warm up with those parts. And that way I'm not thinking of it as I'm playing the music, I'm just warming up with these little highlighted parts. So I've learned a better way of practicing. Why do I tell you that story? Uh, because I think most of us have learned or, or at least heard about ways of doing theology that's okay, that's really good, and really bad. So today, last, last week we talked about what is theology. It's faith-seeking understanding. We explore that idea. Today I'd like to talk about how do you do this thing then, this seeking, um, seeking understanding. So theologians talk about doing theology rather than just learning or studying theology because it is something that we do. And uh, one way of thinking about this, and this is a very old way of thinking about doing theology, is it's very cognitive. Remember the domains? We talked about the cognitive, the affective, and psychomotor domains. So knowing things, like knowing the Bible. But knowing the Bible isn't enough uh, because 
For example, I know the passage after Moses uh, finally agrees to go and deliver God's people. He agrees. He, remember this dialogue Moses has with God at the, at the burning bush? And he keeps making excuses, and, and, and he finally agrees to it. I know the biblical passage then does something really, really strange. It has a story of God wanting to kill Moses. And then he goes home. Zipporah, his wife, circumcises their boy, takes the foreskin and, and touches it to his foot. And God says, okay, I'm not going to kill you anymore. And that's a text that I know, but I have no idea what to do with it. I've never preached that passage. I've never taught that passage because I have no idea why. It doesn't say, the text doesn't even say why God wants to kill Moses. It just says God wants to kill Moses all of a sudden. What is happening? So you can know the Bible and yet not have any idea what to do with it. And on the other side, uh, we have Christian ideas because we're taught them, but we don't know where they come from. Uh, so at my home church, I sit in the very back because uh, my pastor and I are, are friends and he knows what I do for a living. I'm a biblical scholar. And he's, uh, when he's preaching, he feels a little nervous when he is trying to explain or teach a passage from the Bible and you've got a biblical scholar sitting there. And, and initially when I started attending the church, he said, do you just shake your head at me every day? Every time I preach, like, no, you're not... You're not I said, no, that's not, that's not my attitude when I worship. I'm not here as a scholar. I'm here as someone who wants to worship God with you. And he said, yeah, but every once in a while I must say something. You're like, yeah, you're taking that out of context. So that's not what the text means. You're thinking that, right? It's like, yeah, sometimes it happens. <laughs> I'll be honest. I can't turn it off completely. That's what I do, right? So uh, I sit in the very back. But every once in a while he does this. He has a wonderful sermon. Love it. I absolutely love what he's saying. Solid Christian ideas. But then the text he's teaching from is the wrong passage for it. The text doesn't say that. The text seems to be talking about something else, but he's talking about something really, really wonderful and deeply Christian, but it just doesn't relate to the passage that he's, he's looking at. So then that can happen too. You can know a passage and not know what to do with it, or we have these great ideas and we just don't know where we got it. Uh, so we can, we can think of uh, doing theology as kind of harmonizing all those elements. Another way of looking at uh, uh, theology is, how do we then take those Christian biblical ideas that we have, hopefully they're both Christian and biblical, and how do we then look at the world through that lens? So what does it mean that God is Trinity? How do we look at the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ? When we look at any situation or any need or any, any decision we have to make, how do we look at the world through that lens? So that's um, a very traditional way of thinking about doing theology. It's cognitive. It's talking about how do we look at things. Uh, so, and it's good. It's good to do theology that way. Uh, we, we tend to think of doing theology that way as very logical, rational thinking um, sequentially, this, therefore, this, therefore, that. Uh, we tend to think of uh, that kind of theology as driven by a purpose. Like I said, looking at the world. How do we make decisions about, um, for example, um, 
political decisions. If, they, if you have to think about something po political, do we just simply side with whatever is on our voter registration card or do we think Christianly about it? How do we let our faith determine what we eat? Uh, how, do we, how do we let our faith determine where we live, how we live? So uh, it's driven by that purpose. It's also focusing often on doctrines. So uh, the doctrine of salvation. We'll talk, you'll, uh, you will talk about with others, other um, teachers here, what's the mission of the church? So that's missiology, and we think about ecclesiology. How do we function as the church? Those are doctrines. So the older way of thinking about Christian theology, or the traditional way, was very cognitive. Uh, and all those things that's on the screen right now, logical, purpose-driven, and um, focusing on good doctrine. And that's good. We should have good doctrine. But there might be a better way of thinking about this. Uh, just like um, there are good ways to practice the cello and there are better ways to practice the cello, there might be a better way of doing theology. And better, instead of thinking simply logically and sequentially, uh, perhaps we can think holistically and synthetically. Now, synthetic and holistic means looking at the big picture, and uh, synthetic is taking two ideas and putting them together. So synthesis, putting two ideas together. So rather than think, here's my doctrine of ecclesiology, here's my doctrine of salvation, well, how do those two connect? Where does the church play? Uh, what role does the church play in our understanding of salvation? So that's synthetic and holistic. Another, another um, this is more of the affective, isn't it? We talked about affect last time. Uh, beyond cognitive, what is our attitude toward our theology? So, when I started my seminary studies, I had a professor tell me this once, and I was so confused initially. He said, TC, you're so teachable. And he meant it as a compliment, and I knew that, because the, the tone, you know, you can tell a lot by a tone. But I thought, I'm in seminary. You've been teaching here for 40 years. I'm actually uh, investing my time and money and energy into learning. Why wouldn't I be teachable? So I was confused. I'm a, you're a teacher, I'm a student, I'm learning. I want to learn as much as possible in the time that I have. I was devouring everything that they assigned to read. Um, and I loved it, because uh, I, I felt this call to serve God in some way. And I was in seminary, and I wanted to learn as much as possible. And he said, you're so teachable. I said, okay, <laughs> thanks, I guess. And then I became a teacher. And I finally understood why that was a compliment. Because the majority of my students don't want to learn anything new. They want me to confirm and affirm what they already know. They have beliefs and they have ideas and they want to know, why should I hold on to my belief? Help me hold on to this. And I don't. Often, I say, I, I shake, I, I tell them, this is my metaphor, especially in intro-level courses. I will shake you and see what falls out. And if you can't hold on to it, let it go. Hopefully, the things that you will not let go are things like your love for God and your, your, love, your love for your neighbor. But if you have a very simplistic view of the Bible and it falls out, it's meant to fall out. Many of my students want me to uh, confirm what they already believe. 
And so recently, I now use that term, I started using the term to some of my students, like, you're so teachable. And they're like, okay. Because <laughs> the ones that are really teachable don't know it, don't, don't know why that's a compliment. I uh, recently had a student who just went on to go to Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. Um, she was an honor student in the Bible and theology, and uh, one of the most teachable students I've met, because she just devours, she's just hungry for knowledge. And uh, she's going on to uh, master level work, and hopefully she wants to be mini-me. She wants to be um, an Old Testament scholar, a biblical scholar. And I keep t- telling her, you're so teachable, and she's like, okay. Teachable. Uh, is our attitude in pursuing doctrine something more like humility? Um, as I get older, I, I, I realize I don't get into theological debates as much as I used to when I was a younger man, and I was really interested in theological ideas. I used to love debating people, and exploring ideas that way, and I don't do that anymore. Because I realize there's so little I know. I mean, there's so much more to know. And, and debate doesn't seem to actually change anyone's minds anyway, and it's not a great way of learning. Uh, dialogue is a good way of learning. Debate isn't. Debate actually entrenches you deeper into what you think you know, whereas dialogue is open, like, huh, what do you believe? Why do you believe that? Let me, let me explore this. I had a professor who used a great metaphor uh, for uh, important ideas in the Bible or in our, in our faith. So he said this. He said, imagine a marble in your hand one marble in your head and grip it as tight as you can and there will be people trying to take it from you try to pry the pinky and take it from you but they won't because you've got a death grip on that marble those are your convictions convictions like the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the salvation of all right? all who believe uh, the love of God. So when you've got like death grips on a couple of marbles, those are your convictions that you can live and die by, and that's it. Imagine you put two marbles in each, in each hand, okay? Two marbles. Three, four, five, six. Yeah. Now, how tightly can you hold on to them all? And mode of baptism. At some, at some of my friends, they believe that you have to be fully dunked. Otherwise, you're not really baptized. Some of them hold on to that, along with the death and resurrection of Christ in the same hand. Which one might fall out? So he used this illustration of the death grip on a one, very few ideas. So he said, have two hands. You have two hands. Hold the most important ideas with the death grip. Those are your convictions. Then, on a very open hand, hold on to all the other ideas. What that, that does then is you can see what the other people are holding. And my favorite color is purple. And if you have a purple marble and I've got a blue marble and you like blue marbles, we can say, hey, I like your purple marble. Purple marble, that's hard to say. Uh, I can say, hey, that's really great. Where'd you get this? So we, I, can, I, I want to adopt this idea because I like it. I've seen it in your hand now and I can take it. So. Uh, so a theological dialogue says, yeah, there's some things you're not going to change my mind on. And really, we can talk about it, but it's not going to change my mind. But there are plenty of other ideas I hold very loosely. You can see what I believe. I can see what you believe. We can exchange ideas. We can find out where we got those ideas. So 
rather than uh, simply thinking of theology as just having all the right answers, we can think about the process of doing the theology. Uh, and, and living, he, we talked about this last time too, didn't we? Uh, he talks, uh, Miglior talks about the, the task of theology not as cognitive only, affective only, but psychomotor. Living it out. Actually doing it. There are some really, really bad ways of practicing cello, and that's not actually my way. Uh, there's some, there are worse ways than what I do, which is to start, start, keep starting over. That's not a great way, but there are really bad ways of, of practicing, which is practicing everything the wrong way, or not practicing at all. Then there's some bad ways of doing theology, and, and here are some. We'll talk about each of these uh, separately. Uh, what often is referred to as biblicism by uh, scholars, biblicism is a simple view of scriptures. We'll talk about that. Uh, allowing culture to, to dictate what we believe and what we do, cultural conformity. Or what um, scholars now call radical individualism. Or individualism to the point of re disregarding the collective. Okay, so each of these, biblicism. I, uh, I used to hear this phrase a lot. It's kind of been... Um, fading out, no creed but the Bible. Or in a discussion of some, some kind, someone will say, well, the Bible says this and I believe it. That's good enough. Uh, I'll hear very simple ways of thinking about the scriptures. And the scholars call this biblicism. And, and, and you could argue, well, isn't that just a high view of scriptures? They're saying, I, I have a really high view of scripture. I'm going to let that dictate what, what I believe. But it turns out that's really a, a terrible way of looking at scripture. Here's why. The Bible is from ancient cultures, long ago, from um, as early as perhaps 1500 BC is when the earliest parts would have been written down. It's from uh, 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 about 15, at least 1500 years of writing and multiple books over that time collected into our Bible. The Bible is uh, not just one book, many, many books from different time periods written in ancient and dead languages. So uh, the Greek today is not the same Greek of the New Testament. Hebrew today is not the same Hebrew of the Old Testament and so forth. So there are ancient languages from an ancient culture from a long period of time. And written by a bunch of different people, different contexts. I have trouble reading Shakespeare. That's only a few hundred years old. When I get to Chaucer, I, get, I have no idea what he's saying. Shakespeare, I can kind of make out if I slow down and look up a few words, like fardels. What's a fardel? <laughs> I, have to look it, I have to look it up. Or a botkin. Apparently a botkin is a knife. So um, I can read Shakespeare with a dictionary, a Shakespearean dictionary, and slow down so I can, oh, okay, he's saying, who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life? Who would carry these burdens under when he can kill himself with a bare knife? When he might, when he himself might, his quiet is make with a bare botkin. So I can slow it down, look up some words, and I make sense of it. When I get to Chaucer, I can't even. It's too old. It's still, again, just a few hundred years old. Uh, imagine reading Anglo-Saxon languages a thousand years old. Or two thousand years old. It wouldn't look like anything we would recognize. So that the Bible was written over 1,500 years, starting about almost 2,500 years ago or longer for us 
Depend there's lots of debate over when the Old Testament might have been written or collected finally. So the Bible is really, really complex. But there's this, uh, a, a doctrine called the perspicuity of Scripture, that, that the Bible, because it was inspired by God, is accessible to us. That we can read it and understand it. Perspicuity of Scripture. And I think it's true, yes and no. Yes, the Bible is clear in some ways, and it's unclear in other ways. That's my grandmother. <laughs> I've talked to you about my grandmother before. I thought I'd show you a picture of her. When, this is a few years before she passed. She was, <laughs> I tell you, she's, she was like four feet tall. Uh, she was, uh, I mentioned last time, she was the matriarch of our larger um, family. Um, but she was a sweetheart, too. And as I mentioned last time, she was the one that raised me, uh, my sister and, my, and me, because um, my mom had to work and uh, was often absent at home. So she was the mother at home. So if I scraped my knee, I didn't come, I mean, I came into the house screaming, Grandma! So... That's my grandmother. Uh, I mentioned, I might have mentioned this, when she became a Christian, she loved the Lord so much. She just read the Bible. She became just a voracious reader of Scripture. And she um, attended almost every Bible study or every, every time she could learn something about the Bible, about her faith, she just went. Yes, sir? Um, she was a kind of nominally shamanistic uh, which back then lots of Koreans wore. Shamanism is a kind of religion where you have a shaman or a medicine man or a medicine woman and oh, there are spirits and people pray to the spirit of the sky and so forth. Water. Sh uh, animism is like the Native American kind of religions. So in East Asia at the time, that was much more common than Buddhism. And Buddhism and shamanism mixed together is what kind of created Korean and Eastern Asian cultures like um, if you look at East Asia from Japan to all the way to, to Taiwan and Hong Kong, that whole region was really three, three influences, Confucianism, Shamanism, and Buddhism kind of merged and created that culture. And so she was just really part of that. Sorry, that was probably way more than what you wanted to know. Uh, sorry. Uh, so when she became a Christian, she read a lot. And uh, did I mention in here what I got when I would visit her during seminary? No? Okay. So when I would go home, I was, my family was all in San Antonio at the time, mostly. And my seminary was in Dallas. It's a four to five hour drive, depending on traffic. It's just Highway 35 straight down. And so I'd go visit my family. And when I was in San Antonio, of course, I'd go visit my grandmother. Uh, when I was there, she just wanted to know everything I was learning in seminary. She was so proud that I was pursuing uh, study of scripture and pursuing ministry. And so she just, tell me everything you're learning. And so if I, it's been two or three weeks, then there's a lot. <laughs> and I couldn't skip or summarize, like, no, slow it down. And so she wanted two weeks of graduate studies all condensed into a visit. Because uh, she was voracious, and, and, and I tried my best. And sometimes she'll say, I know that already, move on. I'm like, wait, how did you know that? How did you know that? And she said, well, I read the Bible. Ah, okay, it's in the Bible, isn't it? <laughs> like some of the historical stuff. Like she knew who the Babylonians were, who the Chaldeans were, the New Assyrians were. She knew all that. Because it's just it's in there. So what's been condensed for me as a history of Israel, she got it in the full reading of Scripture over and over.
other things she wouldn't get, she didn't know, and then she'd be like, oh, I see. This idea you told me connects with this and this and this and this and this. Look at that. And I'd be like, slow it down, Grandma, because that's my paper. <laughs> that's, a, that's brilliant. How did you make those, how did you make those connections? Because she had all the raw materials, really. And then when I gave her this one little nugget of something, and she, she would run with it. And she would tell me all the things. Is this, do you think this is right? And I'm really, literally writing it down, thinking, that's my paper for that class. So there's something she just innately understood far better than I did. Uh, when we were talking about agricultural societies, that's, that's her background. So there, there are some things that my grandmother knew be, just because of her life experience and, and reading of scripture over and over. Her exposure to it was just, just more, just deeper than mine. Um, so, I, I, so this got me thinking about what communication is. Um, I don't study com arts, communication arts, but I, I think about it a lot in terms of linguistics. So I'm, I'm using words right now, sounds coming out of my mouth, my vocal cords, and you're getting ideas somehow in your, in your, in your mind. So the sounds I'm producing is communicating something to you. How is that possible? Because the words themselves have nothing to do with reality. So, you know, you can call water, water, or agua, right? Agua in Spanish. It can have different sounds. In Korean, it's muy, shui. So the sounds have nothing to do with the thing itself, and yet we are able to communicate. How does that happen? Uh, and I think it happens because of common experiences. So I had this, I, I usually do this thing with my students. I, uh, try and describe the taste of milk to me. Can you try? What does milk taste like to you? Imagine I've never had milk. I'm trying to explain what milk tastes like to someone who's never had milk. What if, you were, what if you were a missionary somewhere where they never imagined drinking cow's milk and so they don't have it? And you're trying to explain you, this substance that you drink called milk to this other culture, what would you say? See the difficulty of this? It's like water. No, it's not. Well, it's, it's creamy. Well, cream is a milk product, so if never, if, if never had milk, they wouldn't know what creamy is. It's sort of sweet, but not really. It's really difficult. The other challenge, I, this was not my challenge, the word blue. So when I was in college, uh, we had a group of friends and we did a lot of things together, but among them was uh, a woman uh, who was born blind. She was born blind. And uh, she, she, her, she, she was really just, I mean, she was born that way. She was very well adapted to her environment. Um, only thing she couldn't do really was drive, right? Because uh, you can't touch your way out when you're driving. But, boy, she could use that stick in ways that I would have never imagined. She could tell every step as she's walking. Um, so, and she, she tried to explain to us that there's some things that she will never understand. And one thing is color. And so she challenged the whole group, and these are all very bright students. You know, we have Harvard students and MIT students and... This was in Boston, and lots and lots of smart kids. And, and she said, help me understand the color blue. And we tried. We, we went. Every time we got together, someone would come up with something new. 
So one time we were going down to Martha's Vineyard and someone said, I got it, I got it, I got it. The color blue is cool. It's a cool color. When you look at it, you feel cool. And color red is warm or hot. You feel warm when you look at it. And so she says, well, give me something blue then. And so somebody gave, gave her something blue. And she touched it. She said, this feels no cooler than any other object around me. Because she knows what temperature feels like. And, and it occurs to me now what the challenge was. We had no shared experience to speak of. Her experience was so different from mine in terms of eyesight that we couldn't share that. But we could talk about everything else, like music. Oh, uh, she loved music. And I love music. So we could spend two hours talking about just music and not know that two hours passed because we had that in common. So when we think about um, experiences that people have, so Moses, the author of Genesis, let's say, and my grandmother, when you look at their lives, they've had obviously common experiences that's common to all humanity, including things like birth and death and food and hunger and desire and love uh, and family relationships. So Moses, the author, and uh, my grandmother would have shared lots in common. So there's something innate in the communication that, that takes place, and she gets it. In the text of Genesis 12, it says, now there was a famine in the land. Uh-oh. So Abraham is, is shown this land. I'm going to give you this land, Abraham, or Abram at the time. God tells Abram, and Abram says, okay, this is great. He builds an altar, worships God. And then there's this, this phrase occurs. In, in Hebrew, it's ominous. In English, it just says, now there was a famine in the land. And I used to read that all the time. I'm like, oh, there was a famine in the land. Okay, so he went somewhere else. My grandmother said, oh, my she knew in an agricultural society, famine means possible starvation. It's almost like saying now there was a great depression on the land. It, it, it's dark, it's foreboding, and it's worse than just the Great Depression. Everybody could starve to death. So she understood some things, uh, and, and, and also my grandmother, when I compare her with Moses, they actually share some experiences that I don't have with them. Some unique experiences, for example, war. I've never personally experienced war. Moses has, and so has my grandmother, twice. She's experienced things like nobility and what it means to belong to a noble family, what it means to have leadership, to live in agricultural societies. We live in an industrialized society where we, we look at you know, farmland and we don't think much of it. So there's a lot that she shared with Moses that I don't share. So in a way, that, that doctrine of persecuted scripture, that scripture is clear, yes, but also no. The New Testament says God gave to church teachers. I'm standing right here, right? Why am I, why am I here? Why, why do you have pastors who teach the text? Because some things are beyond common experiences. So there are some things that I've done in order to share more, let's say, with Moses. I've learned biblical languages. So when I read um, Genesis, I read it in Hebrew, the language that the author would have used. And the longer I read and live in the Hebrew uh, languages, it makes sense to me beyond translating into English. So I was trying to explain to my students in my Hebrew 1 class that the Hebrew to be verb doesn't exist. There's no to be verb like the English to be verb. So we don't say, we say in English, she is tall. In Hebrew, you just say she tall. You don't really need the is. 
In fact, you can't use it there. If you say, if you use the to be verb in Hebrew, it sounds really awful and weird because the to be verb means to exist, to be or not to be, that kind of to be. It's not a copula that links two words together like she is tall. So if you use the to be verb there, it would say she exists tall. Like what? The, the word hayah in Hebrew, to exist, to be, is the root of the word Yahweh. God is. God was. God will be. That's the word. So it's not a copula or a linking verb like the English to be verb was. But I'm trying to explain this to my students, and I'm like, doesn't that make sense to you? Like, she tall. He's smart. He belong. I don't need the to be verb. I've lived in the Hebrew mindset for too long. And I understand Hebrew without translating it into English now. I used to have to. But I don't anymore. I've studied uh, their history, so share more. I've studied their culture, so again, trying to get closer to their experiences. I've learned their literary styles and writings. Um, so each time I do this, you can move closer and closer to the original author, but here's the kicker, here's the rub. Or to be more Shakespearean, ah, there's the rub. Can, the, can those two circles ever match perfectly? No. I can never experience all that Moses has, neither could my grandmother. So that is where our attitude should be, or the affective domain of learning. There should be a level of humility as we approach theological ideas, biblical ideas, knowing that I will never fully understand what someone else is actually saying. So biblicism, it might sound really pious, like, well, the Bible says it, so I believe it, but it disregards the process of interpretation. The Bible actually doesn't say anything at all. It's perfectly silent. Right? Nothing. The Bible only says things when we read it and interpret it. Psalm 23. Oh, I was close. I'm not familiar with this book. I was close. I was, I was trying to find Psalm 23. It's right there. Actually, I don't really need it, but do you remember the Psalm, the famous Psalm 23, the 23rd Psalm? The Lord, or Yahweh, that's the God's name there in all caps. Yahweh, the covenant name, is my shepherd. I want nothing else. Because he leads me, because I'm sheep, don't, don't forget that I'm sheep. He leads me to green pastures. Makes me lie down in it. Now it says something, because we read it. And if you spent time studying it and interpreting it, and you realize almost the entire psalm, until you get to the very end, is from the perspective of sheep. Though I walk through the valley of shadows of death, that's still sheep. I fear no evil or bad things will happen to me because his staff and rod, the shepherd. The shepherd guides the sheep through dangerous spots. I don't worry because I see, the, I see the staff and I know that the shepherd will protect me and guide me. The whole psalm is in the perspective of the sheep until you get to the end and, he says, and then the psalmist breaks out into joy and says, and he prepares a table before me. 
Uh, sheep don't eat at tables. So now that's the man speaking, the poet speaking. David's saying, in front of my enemies, <laughs> I have no worries. I'll, I'll relax and eat in front of my enemies because God is so wonderful. And he ends with a praise, so I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's a confession of faith. So now the Bible says something, but before we did that, it said nothing. The Bible is silent. There's a process of interpreting. Again, I will never fully understand that poet. Those two circles will never meet. But I can try. I am trying really, really hard. I've devoted my life to trying really hard, but I still know I won't get there. So if somebody else says something I disagree with, instead of having an attitude like, you know what, I've been studying this a long time, you don't know what you're talking about. Because every year I teach that psalm with students, because I teach the psalms every two, every two years I teach the psalms and Job. My students will point something out to me, and I'll go, whoa, how'd you see that? Because that student's experience, life experience, is not like mine. So then that person brings something in common with a poet. So the Bible is given to not individuals, but to the church for that very reason. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. Well, the Bible doesn't say anything. It's read by people. It must be interpreted. And also, that, that, it, that phrase, well, I believe it, almost sounds like you don't believe it. So if you and I disagree, then you don't even believe in the Bible. Or if, if, if people say, well, that settles it for me. That's it. I don't need to talk about it. That, it's actually contradictory biblical ideas. The Bible says, well, you keep, remember the definition last week? Seeking. It doesn't end. It doesn't stop. And the Bible's pretty clear. These two words in Colossians, uh, so let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom. Those two Greek words are in participial forms or participles. And it's an ongoing thing, which English renders it with the I-N-G ending, teaching and admonishing. It's a continual process that we do this together. And then here's the affect put on then as God's chosen one's holy and beloved compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And really what, what Paul's doing there is simply describing Jesus. Look at that. Compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient. So that's the affective goal of Christian theology. Um, I'm going to skip that part because uh, we did start a little late. So, by the way, Dan, I did truncate 75 minutes into 60 before I came today, but then now we lost a few minutes, but, so I'm going to skip that little one little part. But if you, oh, but I should show you, though, just the title. If you're interested in uh, a book that's been influential to a lot of theologians, um, H. R. Rich, Richard Niebuhr wrote a book called Christ and Culture, and it de describes our posture as Christians toward culture. And he describes various attitudes we can have. We can stand against culture, uh, or we can simply conform to culture, or we can be kind of transforming our culture around us. And he says there are times and we need to do all three of those things. And so, and, and that's just, a, it's a wonderful book. Um, sometimes I do think that we need to be countercultural. Here, uh, here's an example. <laughs> I love this cartoon. It says it's a bunch of men sitting around. Okay, gentlemen, next on the agenda, should we give women equality? Uh, when, we talk, when we talk about our culture, uh, not just I mean, North American culture, but 
almost universally, um, patriarchy has been alive for a long time. And so what do we do as Christians? Do we simply say, well, that's, that's our culture. What can you do? Or do we stand against it like the Bible does? So the Bible is written in deeply patriarchal cultures as well, far more than ours. And then yet you still have stories like the book of Ruth, where the main protagonists are women. Not just women, widows, both widows. The lowest of, uh, in, in their society elevated to the position. Oh, by the way, Ruth is not just a woman and a widow. She's a foreigner. She's Moabite, not even Israelite. And then she becomes a great-grandmother of David. So the, the Bible has stories like Esther, Deborah. So even in a deeply patri patriarchal culture, it's starting the trajectory of redemption, getting to equality before God, because that's how we were made. Uh, some other, this is the video that I was going to show you, the, but the sound didn't work. But do you remember, this is a movie, um, Wall Street, Michael Douglas. And this is a speech that, uh, that at the time was kind of popular. And he says, greed is good. And he goes on to say, why greed is good. Uh, actually, let me pause on that just for a sec. Greed is the one sin that we never talk about in the church in the West because it is so deeply ingrained in our culture that to stand against it is to stand against Christians in the church. So we don't talk about it. We talk about lust. You know the seven deadly sins or something? We talk about lust or something. Uh, but we don't talk about greed because it is deeply ingrained in our culture. Violence. Also another thing that's deeply embedded in our culture. Um, my son's a gamer, I, I might have mentioned that. And so we, in our home, we have one rule about his games. He can play whatever game he wants, he, if, as long as you know, he can afford it and we can support whatever it's doing. He can't play realistic, violent games. Not because I think it causes people to be violent, studies show it doesn't, but here's what I don't want him to enjoy. It's realistic violence in video games essentially says, you can have fun while watching other people suffer. And I don't want him desensitized like that. I want him to hurt when other people hurt. Not to cause it. Even in a game. I know that video games don't cause people to be violent. That's not what I'm worried about. I'm worried about his soul, not his actions. Uh, do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. It is for, for this that you were called that you might inherit a blessing. The Christian response to violence is peace. I mentioned individualism, so I'm going to cover that really quickly. Um, individualism, the, the kind that, that theologians condemn as a theological approach, is to say, well, uh, did you also notice that Biblicism says, I believe it, not we believe it? So the Bible says it, I believe it. It's a very individualistic approach anyway. Uh, but radical individualism it's, might even say something that sounds really pious. Well, the Lord led me to believe this. The Holy Spirit gave me this idea. Well, that's good for you. But how does that impact the church? The Holy Spirit dwells in the church. And so uh, radical individualism has gone to um, extremes in, in Western civilization today to the point that young people who are living in college campuses today 
are the loneliest they've ever been because they're always alone. I just shared a video with them, uh, with students. I, I showed it in class and I sent it out to in emails. It's a heart, uh, I'm sorry, Yale psychologist uh, who is teaching a, the most popular course ever in the history of Yale, and it's a psychology of happiness. And so she was on CNN and doing an uh, interview with uh, Christian Amanpour. And so I sent that video out, because students will watch a video. They may not read an article, but they'll watch a video. And so I sent this out, because what she talks about in the middle of that video is this. True happiness comes from other-centeredness. So if you say, me, 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 I want to get happy, how do I get happy, self-care, self-concern, then you get actually less happy. But when you start serving others, doing nice things for others, other-focused, other-oriented people are the happiest people. And she's not the first person to say this. There were Harvard psychologists who did studies on happiness. Uh, the most happy people are servants. And, and I shared that video with students like, it took 2,000 years and Harvard and Yale professors to tell you something Jesus said 2,000 years ago. You seek your life, you will lose it, you give it up for others, and you will find it. It's like, duh, it was right in there. So I tell them the profound truth of Jesus' teaching is some, it takes a while for people to actually filter through their science and go, oh yeah, that's true. Okay. Serving others is at the heart of the Christian faith. Um, I, I've talked about bad ways of doing theology, some good ways of doing theology, and here's, here's a, a method that sometimes is called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Um, and <coughs> the, it's, this is really almost, almost common sense now, but uh, this, it says something like this. We have the Bible, but we need our minds to read it. In fact, if you read something, and if it doesn't make sense to you to do it this way, maybe you're reading it wrong. We have reason, we have tradition that's been passed down from the early church, and we have our experience. So those four components, scripture, reason, tradition, and experience, shape how we think about things and how we do things. So for example, um, some churches perform communion each Sunday, or every time they get, they get together, right? So if you're Roman Catholic, you do Mass, there's communion every time. Other churches do it once a month. Some churches don't do it ever. Did you know this? Um, the Quaker church actually doesn't do communion. They believe that it's too externalized. The true communion should be internal. They don't also do baptism. Uh, some churches do baptism by immersion, some baptism by sprinkling, because it's been tradition that's been passed down. So if someone were to say, well, you should only have baptism by full immersion, well, it's okay. We can have a conversation about that, a dialogue. But we should be open to considering those other, because they usually appeal to scripture. They say, well, in scripture it says, you know, Jesus went and to, to the Jordan and baptized. And, um, but those four components then form our, our theology. That's called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. And you might ask, why not just scripture? If we have the Bible and the Bible is the foundation of Christian faith, why do we need to consider anything else? It, because... When, when you and I recognize our own limitations, when we read the Bible, we realize we can have limitations on our interpretation itself. So earlier, uh, in, we do this. We misinterpret things all the time. And we also have sometimes self-serving interpretation of texts. 
says, well, I don't want to do it that way, so I'm going to read this way. And not, maybe not intentionally, but sometimes we'll do it that way. In other words, like I said before, um, God has blessed us with a mind. God has blessed us with a community, not just even today, but the community of 2,000 years of Christian believers, the church. And God has given us life. The greatest gift to us that we live. And, and in that life, we gather experiences. And those experiences help shape how we think. And to disregard all of that uh, for just a Bible kind of people, then you're actually saying, mm, I'm not all that grateful for my mind or my community or my life. I just want that little thing. And often then it becomes deeply individualistic, um, disregarding the community of believers. That's it for today. Uh, I had a couple more things, but we're out of time. So thank you again for having me. And I will see you back. <laughs> thank you. I will see you back in February when we talk about the Holy Spirit and the Christian life. So I will see you in a while. Thank you.